So I was on my afternoon jog. I like to run through these residential neighborhoods right by where I live. It's a pretty quiet part of Seattle, so I can clearly hear my podcasts while I run. And though the sidewalks are pretty narrow, since there are so few cars driving around those residential streets, if there's ever somebody else walking on the same sidewalk as me, I just run on the street for a bit to keep my distance. Anyway, I was on this one run on a beautiful, sunny day, and all of a sudden, this empty, tiny residential street became crammed full of cars, like a freaking LA traffic jam. And people were honking and yelling, except it wasn't that kind of road rage yelling. It was more of these cheerful, bubbly, lighthearted yelps. And I was like, what the hell is going on? So I kept on running, passing car by car by car, and I noticed that more and more of those cars had their windows rolled down, and some of them even had signs. And one of those signs I saw as I jogged past read, Happy Birthday, Ryan. And as I get to the front of the procession, I finally see what's going on. There's this nice little house with a nice little lawn and a bush with balloons tied up to it. And on the lawn, there's this four-year-old kid with his mother. And as each car drives by very, very slowly, there's another kid, about Ryan's age, sticking his or her head out of the passenger seat window, waving and smiling and giving a soon-to-be disinfected birthday gift. Ryan is jumping up and down, screaming, I got a truck! And then the next car would pull up, and it happened all over again. That was the most adorable thing ever. So, happy birthday, Ryan. Enjoy your fifth trip around the sun. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. We're all learning how to adapt to life with a global pandemic. Whether it's a social distance birthday party, working from home, or watching YouTube tutorials on how to sew your own face mask, there's no doubt that the coronavirus has made its stamp on the year 2020. So for today's episode of Strange New Worlds, I thought we'd talk about the many ways in which viruses have shaped life. Not just human life, but the entire biosphere throughout time. To help me accomplish this goal, I've brought aboard two incredible guests via subspace communications. The first is Aditi Narayanan, a Caltech graduate student studying biology, specifically viruses in marine ecosystems. Aditi is also a co-host and co-producer of the Caltech Letters podcast called Biosphere. The second is Dr. Stuart Bartlett, a Caltech postdoc who queries the origin of life itself using tools from theoretical physics. Together, the three of us are going to try to weave a brand new understanding of viruses on the level of the biosphere. 
We're going to use the Voyager episode Macrocosm as our leaping off point. Aditi will tell us about giant viruses in real life. And then we're going to spiral out of control, diving into topics like the inevitability of viruses, how viruses control nutrient cycling on the ecosystem level, and why viruses may actually be responsible for biological innovations, and much, much more. Ready? Let's go viral. Start the recording. Does it, does it show that it's recording on your end? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Stuart, does it say that it's recording over on your end? I just want to triple check. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Then, uh, yeah, let's get started. So in the Star Trek Voyager episode titled Macrocosm, the Starship Voyager is infected by a macrovirus, a virus that is so big that it can be seen by the naked eye, fly around like a bug through the air, and attack and infect people. And the novel thing about this virus is that it can grow. As Voyager's doctor says, Commander, I think I've just discovered a completely new form of life. From what I can tell, it appears to be a macroscopic version of the virus. You mean the virus has grown? Yes, by a factor of billions. The virus absorbed the miner's growth hormones into its protein structure and used them to increase its own mass and dimensions. In essence, the virus has found a way to leave the microscopic world and enter the macroscopic world, our world. It's a remarkable evolutionary development. Voyager's doctor calls it a completely new form of life. And if something like this macrovirus were actually discovered, it would be a completely new form of life because it does something that no virus that we know of does. It grows outside of its host. Viruses as we know them in reality require a host cell to construct new viral parts and proliferate the virus. Because of this, many scientists don't consider viruses fully alive, and we'll return to this point later. Now, the macrovirus from Voyager still needs a host to replicate. So it's still a parasite, but somehow it's gained some sort of metabolism, the ability to build upon itself and grow, and it keeps growing until it's no longer a thing that you can just swat like a fly, but need to kill with a phaser. <laughs> and that's exactly what Captain Catherine Janeway has to do. In this episode, she essentially runs around Voyager and purges her ship of these viruses. Janeway, in essence, is Voyager's immune response, its antiviral agent. So in recent years, scientists have actually discovered giant viruses. One of them is called the Mimi virus, which is a name, I'm not really sure how it came about, but uh, it, it always struck me as kind of funny. Um, now these giant viruses aren't quite as macroscopic as the ones that Captain Janeway had to fight, but they're still pretty cool. So Aditi, just how big are these giant viruses in comparison to normal viruses and what's so notable about them? Yeah, so to take a step back really quick, the, the name Mimi virus comes from microbe mimicking virus. Mm. So that's where that, that's where that comes from. <laughs> the Mimi virus is on the order of 750 nanometers in diameter, so that's about three-fourths of a micron, and one micron is a thousandth of a millimeter. So 
for context, the original SARS virus, so the one that caused the outbreak in the early 2000s, from about 2002 to 2004, is roughly 80 to 90 nanometers in diameter. So this one is a full order of magnitude bigger. Um, and this is, I think, especially incredible given that the average size of, say, an E. coli cell, um, which is the bacterium used as a model organism in a lot of research, is only one to two microns long, so it's and about a quarter of a micron wide. And Mimi viruses, again, are three quarters of a micron in diameter. It is quite remarkably large. Something else that I think is even more striking about them, if that were possible, is that they can be infected themselves by an even smaller virus. No way. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This kind of virus is called a satellite virus because it relies on yet another virus to propagate. <laughs> One of the ones, known ones that affects mini virus is actually called Sputnik. So, <laughs> fun fact. That's um, actually so, super crazy to think about because you could almost imagine an infinitum of <laughs> things infecting yeah. other things once you get into viruses infecting other viruses. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness, wow, okay. And it's, I mean, it's not always that these viruses infecting other viruses are necessarily going to damage their host virus. Often that host virus's replication is not affected by the satellite at all. But what's interesting about Sputnik is that it actually does adversely affect the Mimi virus and, and there's evidence that it may actually deactivate it, which is really quite extraordinary, I think. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you said Mimi virus stood for microbe mimicking virus. Mm -hmm. And essentially because it probably looks like a microbe if it's that large, you compared it basically to the same size as E. coli, one of the most mm -hmm. famous bacteria around. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. Blew my mind there with the viruses infecting <laughs> other viruses. <laughs> yeah, so like I said in the intro, the common wisdom is that viruses are not quite alive. Viruses can't exist without their cellular hosts, or I guess as I just learned, they're <laughs> the larger virus that they're infecting. Uh, yet it's very easy to imagine cells without viruses. And oh, what a better world that would be right now if <laughs> we didn't have any viruses. Um, but, you know, I've heard of this one school of thought that says wherever you have life, cellular life, like us or like bacteria, you'll have viruses tagging along too. Stuart, can you explain why that would be the case? Well, there seems to be kind of a fundamental self-replicating quality to these kind of uh, entities which carry a certain type of information. And so basically whenever you have, and this, this seems to apply in artificial digital worlds as well as um, in the Petri dish, whenever you have a molecular system that is sophisticated enough to do some form of self-replication, and the, the sophistication that you need is relatively high, especially in the real world as opposed to the digital world. So once you have that sophistication, it turns out that there is always basically a niche that opens up once you have that ability, and it's a, it's a short-term niche, which is that if you are an entity containing just the information, then you will always have a slight advantage over those entities which carry not just the information, but the replicative machinery. 
you will always have a short-term advantage in hijacking that machinery for yourself. And so let's say if we condense our description again to just the information plus the machinery for replicating the information and the replicating machinery, in general, and this goes back to predictions by von Neumann, it seems like the, the simplest way of doing that is that you have this sort of one-dimensional uh, object which encodes the information. So as we know in life, that's DNA. In computers, it's kind of like a tape with um, like domains which can be flipped up or down. So that's your simple information. And then you have some machinery which can read that information and by reading that information and undergoing a set of physical processes, the information and the machinery can both be copied, replicated. And so once that system has arisen, again, whether it's in a simulation or in the, in the lab, there's always the chance that in the process of these two things replicating themselves, something will go wrong and a little bit of that information, again, whether it's a bit of tape or a bit of uh, digital information, a bit of code, you know, there, there might be some mistake in that information, just sort of uh, a fragment of it perhaps just gets um, cast out into the environment. And of course, most of the time, just random fragments of that information will not code for anything in particular and will also not be able to infect anything. But there is always the possibility that eventually, you know, maybe some fragment of that information has just enough that if it slips into the replication machinery, may make a copy without making a copy of the replication machinery. <laughs> <laughs> so it's similar to the problem that evolutionary game theorists have been working on for a long time, which is that if you have a set of agents which are able to replicate themselves, how do you move from that kind of situation to one where they're cooperating? Because we see that in life, there have been these events where previously selfish individuals have become cooperative. And the problem is that there's always this short-term niche for cheating in the system and getting someone else to do your replication. So it seems like that niche is, is, is always available when you have this system of replication machinery plus information, there's always a possibility that certain fragments of information can sneak in and take advantage of the wider system. So um, I have uh, two questions to follow up on, on those really intriguing ideas. The first is basically you're speaking of viruses as if they were a mistake, like a piece of information that lost some of its ability and still hangs around and then basically hijacks a fully living organism to continue to replicate itself. Is that sort of the paradigm that you're yeah. suggesting? That yeah. And of course at the beginning, and even after the beginning, it's entirely accidental. So, you know, the first, let's say, viral entity that could use um, another organism's replication machinery for its own self-replication, it had no idea that it had that ability. And even once it was using other organisms, replication machinery to replicate, it's not as if there's ever any intentionality. It's just that um, there is this open niche. And if the niche can be filled, then it probably will be at some point. 
Um, Due to the so, natural variations of, of of the biosphere, right, the inevitable sort of fluctuations. We mm -hmm. we live in a fluctuating system, yeah. Yeah, those fluctuations will push the the system such that this niche, this open hole, gets filled, and that that is specifically what a virus is. Wow. Now, my other question was that it seems like this is all contingent on a system in which there are entities that divide information carrying from the replicative machinery. And I was wondering if there is a conceivable system in which there are entities in which the information carrying and replicative machinery thing are one and the same, and in which case, would you still have viruses? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, this is a um, hot topic in the origin of life field. It's, it's difficult to work out whether there were viruses in the earliest stages of life or indeed whether the earliest stages of life were viruses. But there are theories about alternative information storing systems and information replicating systems. We are used to thinking of information being stored in genetic polymers and that information then is translated into the sequence structure of proteins but there are people out there who believe that the first organisms may have done things differently and that perhaps the information and the machinery were both proteins and vice versa some people think that the information and the machinery could have been genetic molecules rna specifically and there are advantages and disadvantages to both perspectives of course because if we take the rna example we know that it's a good information carrier, but you might argue, well, how can just that naked information molecule do anything uh, mechanical or do anything particularly functional when its job is just to sit there and be read? And in general, RNA is not a particularly good catalyst, but there is one important exception, which is the, um, well, there are probably more exceptions. I'm just speaking of the exception that I'm familiar with. And that is the um, peptidyl transferase center of the large subunit of the ribosome. So the ribosome is this big, very complex machine which translates the information in messenger RNA and makes proteins of a given sequence. And it's kind of built from two subunits. And the larger subunit is uh, used for loading the transfer RNAs and basically building the growing protein molecule. And um, there's this, this sort of center in the large subunit, which essentially does this polymerization of the growing peptide chain. And that is a RNA catalyst, a ribozyme basically. And so some people point to that as being this very ancient RNA-based machine. It has information in it, it's an RNA molecule, but it may also be able to perform some machine-like functions. On the protein side, we know that they can do all kinds of clever functions. I mean, they are the machinery of life, but you know, it's, it's arguably not the best way to store information. So there's no clear winner in general. And if I had to choose, I would say it was probably a mixed story and probably both molecules were somehow involved, maybe at every stage. And it might be 
an essential quality of life to actually separate the two, the information and the replicative. Yeah, exactly. That was the first challenge, to basically make the discovery that the one type of molecule was good for one for that function and the other type of molecule was better for the other function. And so out of that paradigm, basically uh, opened up a niche for viruses, which were probably very quickly filled and uh, continues to be filled to this day. And as, as life forms ourselves, uh, as, as cellular life forms, we think of viruses mostly just as a nuisance. Um, you know, they hijack our cells, they make us sick, but in certain ecosystems, especially marine ecosystems, we see examples of how viruses actually play an extremely important role on a much larger scale, on like a nutrient cycling scale. I was wondering if Aditi, you could explain the role of viruses in promoting these cycles in marine ecosystems. Sure, yeah. So in the oceans, there's something known as the biological pump, which is where photosynthetic microorganisms fix carbon. So they convert carbon dioxide into sugars, just like plants do on land. These microorganisms, these photosynthetic microorganisms, are then eaten by slightly larger organisms, which are eaten by slightly larger organisms, so on and so forth. And in the process, that carbon becomes part of the living mass of larger organisms like sharks and whales, and it's effectively sequestered from the atmosphere. Now, when those organisms die, they sink to the seafloor, and they, in the process, become food for other organisms, or they're buried in the sediment, where they decompose more slowly than they might if they were just out on the surface. Now, where do viruses come into the picture? Um, there's something known as the viral shunt, which is where viruses disrupt this process of carbon sequestration by infecting a lot of these photosynthetic microbes and killing them so that they're no longer drawing carbon out of the atmosphere, which on the surface seems like a very bad thing, right? We're all very concerned about CO2 levels, and this doesn't seem helpful. Mm -hmm. But a kind of a side effect of killing these photosynthetic organisms is that the remains of these dead cells go on to feed all the non-photosynthetic organisms, and non-photosynthetic microbes especially, so that carbon is still being shifted into living systems. And of course, there are viruses that affect these non-photosynthetic organisms as well. We also have some evidence that viruses are playing a role in iron cycling. So iron is a limiting nutrient in the oceans, which means there's not a lot of it, and organisms are constantly on the lookout trying to scavenge more. And so by killing organisms like other microbes and lysing them, you're returning iron back to the sort of iron bank of the ocean, but because it was previously existing in a living system, it is already in a form that other living systems can take up. Mm. So viruses in the oceans especially play a very important role in nutrient cycling, and some even have genes known as auxiliary metabolic genes that actually change their host metabolism. So their host might end up consuming more nutrients from their surrounding environment in a way that aids the ultimate goal of viral reproduction. So what you were saying before with the um, biological pump? Pump. Pump. Yeah. So that's basically, if I understood correctly, essentially a one-way street in which carbon, which is taken in from the atmosphere, from CO2 in the atmosphere, gets drawn into these marine ecosystems, mainly by photosynthetic life forms 
that you know can use sunlight to uh, assimilate this carbon from carbon dioxide into living matter. And this pump is is drawing all of that carbon essentially eventually to the seafloor, where it's gone forever. I wouldn't say gone forever. No, <laughs> okay. it's just that it breaks down much more slowly. And I also wouldn't say I wouldn't call it a one-way street because mm. as organisms consume their prey, you know the, the small organisms below them. Some of that is being assimilated into biomass. They're getting bigger, they're growing, but the way we exhale CO2, some of it's just going right back out as CO2. Right. But the idea is that in some way you are still able to sequester some carbon in the form of biomass. And with viruses, they're, they're disrupting that sort of flow. Right, okay. So there is a preferential flow downward to the depths of the oceans of carbon, of other nutrients like iron and the, the viruses essentially by destroying those cells near the top of the ocean, like you said, are disrupting that flow and keeping those nutrients essentially aloft. Dissolved in dissolved. the upper ocean water. Yeah. Got it. Wow. That seems like a very profound thing for such a tiny microscopic, I, I hesitate to call them organisms because we're, you know, yeah. we're still conflicted about whether they're alive or not. But, you know, they interface with life forms at every single scale. They infect bacteria, they infect things as, as large as, as us, um, mm -hmm. and, and really cause a giant effect on the biosphere. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I read that in the time that it takes to blink one of your eyelids, the number of viral infections that occurs in the ocean is equivalent to the number of stars in the observable universe, which my just, goodness. it blows my mind. And so one might say that we, we meaning cellular life, have been at war with viruses since the dawn of time. How has biological evolution been shaped by this so-called arms race between cells and viruses? Well, there's uh, a lot of potential ways that this arms race could have influenced the structure of life. Uh, so these ideas have been pioneered by a researcher called Patrick Fortier, and some of his ideas include the concept of basically defense mechanisms from what he calls ribosome enclosing organisms, i.e. cellular life like us. So basically, if you're getting infected by these viruses, your priority is to stop the infections. And as an organism undergoing evolution, you know, what things might you be able to discover or invent in this battle to prevent infections? So some of the potential inventions due to this arms race are various types of defensive shielding, including the cell wall of bacteria, which you know might make it very difficult for a virus to make its way into the cell. But then let's say that if the virus is still really clever and it can get inside, one thing you can do is protect your own genome. And so it's possible that the nuclear membrane was invented as a way of shielding genetic material uh, from viruses and perhaps even the DNA molecule itself. So if you're an RNA-based organism and your machinery keeps getting hijacked by RNA viruses and you discover 
this slightly different molecule which you can use to um, store your information and then you introduce this extra step of translating DNA into RNA before it gets translated, then maybe you can you can introduce like a checking mechanism in your replication machinery so that you can recognize your own genetic information. And if you get infected, that recognition system will say, hang on a minute, this genetic material is not mine. I refuse to replicate it. <laughs> and indeed, there are these uh, these so-called capping mechanisms where basically it's like an ID tag that organisms put on their genetic material. Again, it's like a it's like a stamp saying this genetic material was made in this cell. It's okay to be replicated. So every step of the way, there would have been this sort of transition where the cellular life invents this defense mechanism, and then the viruses have a problem and. Um, in the intervening period, perhaps the number of infections go down, but at some point, maybe by some mutation or some exchange of genetic material, a virus discovers a way around this defense mechanism, and then the, the battle gets kind of evened out again, and, um, and it starts all over again. And so, in the end, it's a tricky question when you say, well, these things which seem purely destructive is there anything useful that can come out of this sort of damaging entity? And so in the same way that useful technologies have been invented during wartime, maybe some of the defense mechanisms and the innovations that came from cellular life defending themselves against viruses actually made the cellular life stronger in the long run and potentially help cellular life evolve faster than it would have done in the absence of the viruses. Yeah, some of those examples that you brought up, I think there were cell walls, the cell nucleus in complex cells, the eukaryotic cells as we call them. What else? Uh, tagging mechanisms or capping mechanisms for mm. DNA, even DNA itself perhaps. Mm. Um, we're all driven by viruses. So we really wouldn't be what we are without viruses. Yeah. In the same way that um, in like a cooperative society, if you have people spreading false information or lying, the cooperative part of the society is damaged by the lies and the misinformation. But if there's a chance for the um, cooperative part of society to pick up the patterns and the lies and to understand the deceptive process and eventually learn how to recognize this misinformation and the deception and then be able to recognize it and ignore it. Well, after that, the cooperative part is somehow stronger. And so it's a difficult process when the system is learning to counteract the destructive strategies but once that difficult phase passes then these viral systems or the deceptive systems they have a have a tougher job infecting the, the stronger cooperative system. Stuart is this an allusion to anything that's going on in the present day right now? <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I mean if it's possible for us to um build up defense mechanisms, then after we build up the defense mechanisms, we're no longer vulnerable to similar attacks, I hope. Yeah, let's hope we- Hopefully uh, it'll go that way. <laughs> let's hope those defense mechanisms get built up 
very quickly, <laughs> preferably before the election this November. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're familiar with the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology, that mm. is actually derived from the bacterial immune system. <laughs> the bacterial immune system can recognize viruses that have sort of infected it before, as it were. It's a sort of a long-term strategy of adaptive immunity for bacterial cells where they have little bits, if they're able to destroy a viral genome, for example, they can take little bits of that genome and put it into their genome in their CRISPR spacer array is what it's called. And then next time they're infected by that virus, they're able to recognize that viral genome using that little spacer and destroy it. So adaptive immunity. Hmm. And now, of course, it's been repurposed for gene editing. And of course, Patrick also suggests that the immune system was invented as a viral defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. who, who is that? Who suggested that? Patrick Forte. Patrick Forte, right. Okay. Probably others as well, I guess. I, I'm not on first name basis with him, so I... <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Forte, got it. <laughs> um, so yeah, not only do viruses drive the evolution of new traits in cellular life, as we just discussed, but viruses and cellular life have been trading genetic material for billions of years. And we see examples of this genetic transfer between viruses and cells today in what are called auxiliary metabolic genes, which Aditi, you mentioned a few minutes ago. So can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about how these auxiliary metabolic genes or AMGs actually work and maybe give us some notable examples? Sure, yes. What these are effectively bits of metabolic systems, our metabolic systems encoded in a viral genome. So our metabolic pathways or the pathways of a bacterium or whatever host is helping that virus replicate are in some ways sort of multi-part segmented complex systems and they're often encoded in multiple genes. So what viruses can do is pick up part of that pathway or multiple parts of that pathway and stick it into their own genetic material. A notable, couple notable uh, AMGs, one example is for photosynthetic genes. So viruses can encode, as we know, photosynthetic organisms harvest light from the sun and use that energy to turn carbon dioxide into sugar. So viruses can encode additional copies of the gene that help capture the light. And then that basically hands its photosynthetic host additional energy because the host already has its copy of that light harnessing gene, but the virus adds an additional copy. So what it does is it increases the amount of energy available to the cell, but then instead of pushing that energy towards carbon fixation, some viruses may also encode a gene that can push that energy away from carbon fixation and into pathways that produce things like DNA and RNA, which are fundamental building blocks for making new viruses. So that's one very famous example. Um, in, in the deeper ocean, there are viruses that also encode genes for sulfur oxidation. So there are organisms, cellular organisms that get their energy uh, out of certain sulfur compounds, the way we eat and then get energy they use sulfur compounds. And viruses infecting them can encode genes for the processing of these sulfur compounds, although to my knowledge, it's not totally clear what impact this is having on the sulfur cycle yet, but must be something, we hope. And viruses, I think, are also known to encode genes that help their host take up more phosphorus than nitrogen, because these are both nutrients that viral replication relies on very heavily. 
One thing I wanted to go back really quickly to the idea of the biological pump, because I think I made it sound too much like, you know, the virus slices photosynthetic organisms, and then that's it, it's all dissolved and we're done. And all they do is destroy the carbon cycle. There's actually conflicting evidence is more complex than that. There's even some evidence that they might be increasing carbon sequestration in the ocean. They might cause microorganisms to kind of clump together and then sink to the bottom of the ocean and that way actually pull them out of the water column and bury them in the sediment as well. So saying viruses are screwing up our carbon cycle and not letting us fix enough carbon in the oceans is not accurate either. It's, it's much more complex than that. Mm, okay, okay. Uh, jumping back to the AMGs, it seems like the AMGs are essentially viruses' ways of turning their hosts, or like giving their hosts a, a superpower. <laughs> it's like, yeah. take this extra ability, take this extra photosystem or something like that, mm-hmm. which will help you actually grow faster, but you're going to actually use that that extra nutrient or that extra energy that you're gaining to make more of me kind of thing. Yeah. So it's almost yep. like a symbiotic relationship there. In a sense, the bacteria is is gaining something, but ultimately it's the virus who wins and is able to proliferate yeah. itself. Yeah. So that is that is totally a form of symbiosis. It's it's parasitism, mm-hmm. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it almost makes sense, right? Because the virus can't survive if its hosts all die out or are doing poorly. So it's in the virus's own interest to bolster their host's metabolisms. Yeah. And viruses also have ways of deciding whether or not it's worth killing their host at a given time. There's some viruses that rather than just infecting their host and turning all the machinery towards viral production, instead of doing that immediately, they actually kind of hang out for a while in the host and they stick their genes in the host and those genes just kind of hang out until the virus decides it's time to start replicating itself. And so that host can keep growing, keep replicating itself um, without, you know, immediate lysis of any kind. And so that I think adds a complexity to our understanding of how viruses affect these nutrient cycles too, because we don't necessarily know yet what the effect of that sort of infected organism that isn't dying, but has viral genes in it, like how its metabolic systems might be tweaked in any way. We don't have a firm grasp of that. And so that does affect our understanding of nutrient cycles as well. And there's also this trade-off hypothesis that has been around for a long time, which again tries to make sense of the fact that if you're a virus and all you do is kill your host very quickly, then surely that is not a very good strategy in the long term. Mm -hmm. And there does seem to be this relationship between you know ease of transmission and virulence so if transmission is extremely easy then being highly virulent is not too harmful to the transmission of the virus whereas if transmission becomes very difficult then there'll be a selection pressure for the virus to be less virulent it will have to sort of lay low a little bit because if it just kills all the hosts in its path then those hosts will not be a good vector for passing it on and, and, and transmitting it. But of course, there's several compounding factors to this issue. And one is the fact that large organisms like us are never infected by just one or zero species of viruses. We're carrying around a vast number of viruses. 
And so we are essentially a micro ecosystem of small organisms. And so for any given large individual like us, for the viruses in that mini ecosystem, they are all competing with one another to try and get their host to replicate them. And so if the virulence of a given virus drops too low, then it will get outcompeted in the short term by the other viruses in that mini ecosystem. So there's this constant sort of fluctuating battles going on. And yeah, there's the short term niche for just uh, replicating fast. Sometimes that means being highly virulent. But then in the longer term, there's other niches which are closer to symbiosis. And I think that there are probably some studied examples where infectious viruses over some long period potentially became an integrated and symbiotic part of another organism. Yeah, this fluctuating landscape of populations of viruses and cells and their different infective abilities, as well as this genetic trade-off, you know, viruses taking genes from cells that are coding for certain metabolic pathways or proteins in cells and then giving them to their new hosts, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, delivering those, what I call superpowers to those new hosts. Uh, It it all blurs the line and it makes everything super fuzzy. Makes me think that maybe what we need to do is describe viruses and bacteria and cells at a system level perspective. Um, And so we were reading this paper the other week that said that the viral factory, which is essentially the term for an infected host cell that is churning out new viruses, that's the real virus. And the the virion, which is the sort of particle um, that we're worried about catching, you know, today we're worried about catching the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that's just a virion. That's the real virus's mode of propagation, but the real virus is really the system of the cell Mm. creating more virions. Uh, Stuart, do you have any more thoughts on this system level perspective and how it sort of creates a, a new paradigm for understanding viruses in life? Yeah, it's a great point because traditionally with the sort of standard perspective of the biological world, we think of membranes as defining individual cells and individual entities at the microscopic level. And that's why I think we tend to look at viruses and say, okay, there's some genetic material and it's encoded perhaps in a, in a some kind of membrane, protein membrane perhaps. And since it's this kind of spherical, distinguishable object, we tend to draw a line around it and say, that is entity X, in our case, a virus. And then we see that it can only replicate itself by going into another entity Y. Um, But these kind of viral factory ideas and viro cell ideas compel us, I think, to consider other options, which is... Perhaps it is a living system. It just has a very bizarre distributed life cycle. So if we follow this viral factory idea, then, as you say, when it's infected the host and the host is doing its bidding, this is like the core of its life cycle. And 
just at that instance, it sort of looks a bit like a real cell because the machinery is there, the energy is there, and it's replicating. As you say, when, once the virions leave the cell and the host cell dies, those individuals don't look very alive because they're just relatively small set of molecules. But again, it could be just a matter of perspective. Here you could have cells undergoing complete life cycles. It's just that pinning down and identifying the components is a bit more difficult than it is for real cells. Because for real cells, everything's right there and you can point to it. But for these other entities, you know, you have the genetic material here and then the factory is over there and it's, it's spatially distributed, which looks strange to our eyes. But if it's a strategy that works, then it will be uh, selected for. And of course, there are potentially other wayward, what you might call cellular fragments that can contribute to a life cycle, but not always exist in an identifiable cell. So there, you know, it's possible that fragments of proteins or um, extracellular membrane vesicles, they might be part of a complete life cycle, but normally you just find them floating around on your own. And so you think, well, there's no way that thing's alive. It's just a, just a piece of, just some molecules. <laughs> so, so the deception, you know, in this case could be the fact that, you know, viruses are just, you know, information in this transient sort of moving phase. And so that veils the complete picture, which is that there is this life cycle. It's just spread around in a way that's unusual. Well, or not unusual because viruses are so common. So it's perhaps our perspective that is not right. Yeah, that's actually really profound that what we think of as normal uh, might not actually be normal uh, in the sense that there are way more viruses than there are human beings and that yeah that what we look for in a living thing in terms of just like a, a localized cell that contains everything right there may not be the way that a lot of life works maybe life uh is distributed like you said through space yeah. and through time i mean my my life cycle is also distributed because all the machinery that i need to replicate is not in my apartment <laughs> <laughs> I need medical facilities, I need food, I need water, all these things which are sometimes thousands of miles away. So my life cycle is highly distributed and everything that I need to go through my life cycle is quite difficult to pin down within an enclosed space. That's a great perspective, yeah. And and for a virus, you know, its grocery store is essentially a cell. You know, it, it, it needs to go to that cell uh, to yeah. get to, to make more of itself. Um, uh, Aditi, I, I'm wondering about your perspective on this systems mm -hmm. level idea, especially because you're the only real biologist here. <laughs> you, you actually study viruses, so how do you see them? Because I remember learning in biology class that viruses were definitely not alive, and, yeah. and that the virion was the virus and that was it but mm. you're getting a, a phd in biology so how does your perspective on viruses interface with the systems level stuff for me the systems level perspective on it is quite new i find the systems perspective useful for sort of collapsing some of the nitty-gritty details and some of the complexity into digestible perspectives on the viral role in human evolution biodiversity Earth's history. Mm -hmm. Well, it's tricky because um, the meaning of natural selection 
becomes difficult as you look at coarser and coarser grained higher levels of the system mm -hmm. because there is no evolution happening at the planetary scale because planets are not competing with each other yeah. not being selected for and they were not, they are not undergoing heritable variation mm -hmm. and despite um, the fact that you can kill planets like pluto <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah ignoring the um oppression um yeah and so at the finer scales evolution can have a well-defined meaning and at these larger scales it becomes more difficult to figure out what is the system trying to do because the whole planet is not trying to survive the fact that the biosphere has survived well cannot be because of any any kind of intentionality or any kind of natural selection it must be because of co-evolution at some finer levels which eventually propagate up to a generic resilience of the whole biosphere such that even when large fractions of life have gone extinct those remaining fragments which manage to adapt their way around the challenges ice ages or asteroids or whatever it may be will then repopulate the niches that have been left empty by the extinction of the others so this the sort of strong Gaia hypothesis is almost certainly wrong but a weaker form involving co-evolution and emergence is probably more correct but even then there is no well-defined quantity which the whole biosphere is trying to maximize or minimize. No one has been successful in really pinning down what that might be, even though there are sort of candidates that people have suggested. So Didi, you study viruses as part of your doctoral research. I was wondering if there was anything about that research that you'd like to share with us, like what are the big scientific questions that you're trying to address and what are the techniques that you're using to find the answers to them? Oh, sure, yeah. So I study an environment on the seafloor where methane is actually seeping out from within the Earth's crust, deep within the Earth's crust up to the surface of marine sediment so that it reaches the water column. And in that environment, we know of lots of microbes that will actually eat that methane and use it for energy. And those organisms are kind of the, the foundation for an entire thriving ecosystem. And, it, you know, you can imagine why that's important to us, especially right now. If most of that methane wasn't eaten by these organisms, it would end up in the atmosphere. And if it ended up in the atmosphere, we'd be in trouble. So right now, the estimate is that about 80% of that methane is eaten by these microorganisms. What we don't know and there's been a lot of research into the physiology of these organisms and how they interact, but a lot less on regarding what role viruses might play in that environment. And so the big questions that I'm trying to answer briefly are, who is there in terms of viral identity? How does the answer to that question change depending on nutrient fluxes and nutrient availability? And what effect do these viruses have on nutrient cycles in that environment, like especially in terms of methane, how might they be affecting methane consumption, methane processing? Um, I have to say, I don't pretend that I've discovered a whole lot yet. Uh, it's very early, and to some extent, I'm still getting methods to work, but a lot of the methods we use for things like this involve imaging, and isotope tracing, and things like that. But I mean, at the same time, it can be frustrating because we're going in almost blind to a degree, but 
it is it is also very fun to dive into this blind because because there's no research on viruses in this area everything we find is hopefully going to be interesting in some way um, there's no way to get bored so <laughs> yeah that's really awesome you know the bottom of the ocean or deep within earth's crust they're completely alien environments it's really mm -hmm. like exploring a strange new world um mm -hmm. and yeah you're basically cataloging for the first time who's there and what role are they playing in this very important cycle that is controlling how much methane gets out into the atmosphere so best of luck with that and Thank i can't you. wait uh to find out what you discover all right. Well, if there's nothing else, uh, I want to thank you both for expanding my mind with regard to viruses. That was all very fascinating. I learned a lot about viruses' various forms and what they do at the ecosystem level and how they are really an essential part of the biosphere, not just today, but the entire story of the biosphere and evolution here on our planet. Right now, we're all adapting to life during a viral pandemic. Uh, and I, for one, wish that we had someone in a leadership role like Captain Janeway, someone <laughs> whom I could trust to understand the science and wield it against the virus. But despite that, I'm sure that, like the crew of the USS Voyager, we'll all make it through this in the end. So I want to thank you once again, Stuart and Aditi. Stay safe, both of you, and uh, take care. Likewise, thank you. It's been a you pleasure. Too. Thank you. Every time I speak with Aditi Narayanan and Stuart Bartlett, my mind expands in directions I never thought possible. Viruses infecting other viruses? Viruses giving their infected hosts new useful abilities? Thinking of life as a distributed entity, ever-changing in space and time, rather than a set of localized individuals? I'm starting to see viruses in a whole different light. And I hope you are too. Now this, of course, is not to diminish any of the suffering that's happening around the world right now. We must continue combating the coronavirus with the best science, medicine, and social distancing that we've got. And when we emerge from this situation, our societies will be more resilient than ever, so long as we keep an open mind, learn from our mistakes, and seek to more fully understand our role and the roles of viruses on a systems level in the context of the greater biosphere. Until next time, see you out there. In fact, I read that in the time that it takes to blink, what, what are these called? I. <laughs>
eyelids that's right (laughs) i'm gonna say that again (laughs) 